We're in Mark chapter 3. The title of the sermon is, What Can't Be Forgiven? I was, uh, I've had a question mark after it, and then I removed the question mark and, and made it more of a statement. This is what can't be forgiven. Uh, we're going to deal with, in the, in the substance of this passage, uh, Jesus speaking about that which cannot be forgiven. The unforgivable sin, uh, a source of much consternation among Christians uh, in their study of God's Word, and we're going to spend some time on it, but I want us to place it in good context. So I encourage you to, to hear not simply that point, but all of what we discuss here out of Mark chapter 3. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his book, Mere Christianity, which is a summary of, of several of his teachings, it went out over the radio, um, he wrote about what has described as his trilemma. Well, we may not be familiar with that word. We may be familiar with dilemma. A dilemma is wavering between two things between two points. A trilemma is there's simply three points. And here's what Lewis said in his Mere Christianity, he writes, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the silly thing that people say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis continues, he says, that's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Hear that again. A man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who claims to be a poached egg or else... He'd be the very devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis continues. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something far worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit and kill him as a demon. Or, I said a trilemma, right? Three options. Hear it again. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Powerful stuff. This is God's word. God's word here, and I think you're going to see this rise from the text, that the fact of what Jesus presents to us as being the only option for dealing with him and who he claims to be. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. This is God's word. And then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of the demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Bless this reading and our discussion of God's Word, Almighty God. May we see Jesus as we listen to Him speak. For we pray in His name. Amen. This this whole teaching, the parable that Jesus uses and the direct statements He uses there are couched within the context of two groups that are seeking to dismiss what Jesus was doing and saying. They They were looking to discount what was going on. His family, probably the most disturbing, but, but right on his heels were the scribes of the Pharisees in this case. Those who were responsible for teaching the people of God. Those who had known the prophecies, known the promises, known all that was to come and should be the first to recognize the Savior when he stands in front of them. And yet they too were looking to dismiss him. The first, the family, they thought Jesus to be mad. We see right there at the beginning of this. He said, when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him. And they were saying, he's taken leave of his senses. He is out of his mind. He is literally beside himself, is the way the Greeks would have referred to it. He is something outside of who he should be. Now consider that for just a second. There is great reason why the world and those who do not understand our faith might look at us and say, you're mad. You know why? It's because the things that are valued that are valued outside of the faith, that we set aside for that which is truly valuable, seems to be crazy. I've quoted Elizabeth Elliot there, uh, who, who, who was very quick to, to quote her husband, who in, in all her writings and recounts of what he said, said a man is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. But the world would say you're absolutely a fool if you don't grab all that you've got out there, if you don't go and earn as much money as possible, seek as much prestige as possible, seek as much security and stability in the things of this world as possible, when you give up all that safety and security and, and go into the foreign mission field, if, if you go and, and risk relationships to share the gospel with people that need to hear it, you're being a fool for giving up that which is stable and safe and reliable. And you think about Jesus as he was raised. Now, we are, we are kept, uh, I believe, divinely in God's word from seeing those years of Jesus really prior to his 30th year. We, we see snippets. We see his birth. We see the infant Jesus. And for just a moment, just a, a brief shadow as the door opens and closes there, we see Jesus, uh, little 12-year-old Jesus there. Uh, left behind teaching in the temple. We see a bit of that. I do believe it would be very, very difficult for us to understand and to see as we read Scripture uh, what Scripture describes as Jesus growing in knowledge and stature before God and men. For the perfect Lord of all creation, inhabiting human flesh, to grow up, what a difficult thing that must have been to see. (laughs) I've got two younger brothers. I... I say I'm the favorite, but it depends on the day. And my mom and dad tend to place uh, who's the favorite uh, by who lives the furthest away. Uh, for a long while, Savannah was the furthest away, and then my middle brother moved to Portland, and I'd, I'd have to go onto the mission field, uh, foreign mission field, in order to be the favorite once again. But 
you know, there's that, that, that rivalry. And, and I, was, I was a pretty good kid. Uh, I didn't get in much trouble. My brothers managed to find a little bit more trouble than I did. And it wasn't that I was really a good kid. It was just I was scared of getting caught. I was pretty much a cowardly kid. And, and the Lord used that to keep me out of trouble. But my brothers would, would pick on me. My middle brother called me one time, Donnie Osmond. <laughs> See, now there's a big age gap there. Some folks are laughing and they're saying, don't know who that is. But do, do imagine for just a minute how odd a child would be, a, a sinless child. A sinless child growing, a sinless child having to learn how to walk, how to talk, how to do all the things that we have to learn to do because he was a man just like us in every way except without sin. And so now this sinless child who becomes this sinless man is now uh, going and proclaiming that he is the living son of God. And all that he's doing and his family uh, is, is seeking to, to seize him and to claim him and to rein him back in and say, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's out of his mind. It's a difficult thing there. There's a, um, there's a story that's told. It was a short story written by H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells tells the story of a man by the name of Nunez. Um, and he was in uh, the land, uh, land in a country uh, outside of Ecuador. He's climbing through mountains. This is a, a short story, a, a, a fiction, but he tells the account of a, a fabled a group of people that lived in a valley, and in this valley they had been cut off by earthquake from the world. And Nunez had come into this region and had realized that as these people had been cut off from the rest of the world, disease had come upon the people and they had lost their sight. And then generation upon generation upon generation had lived where people in this valley forgot that people once could see. They could not see and they did not continue to tell stories of people who once could see. They were all blind. And Nunez comes seeing into this valley, and he begins to talk about the beauty of the valley, the lovely of the skies, and the people heard him, and they thought him mad because he described this fifth sense that they knew nothing about. What was their solution to this madman who stumbled into their presence? He said, well, they said, what we must do is we must cut out his eyes that would keep him from talking about these mad things. You could go back and read the story. It's a very brief story by H.G. Wells. He ends up uh, escaping that group. But that was their solution. And, you know, really that's the solution that the world offers to the madness of the Christian faith is that, you know, that's crazy, so you just got to cut it out. You just got to stop it. You, you, need to, you need to just deal with the limitations that we have. We who have no sight, we insist that you look at things the way that we don't. Right? Jesus is not mad. Jesus is not mad. No, in the midst of this, He is presenting that which is most sane. That which is most sane. He's speaking about the forgiveness. We've seen that. The forgiveness of the boy who was lowered in. The forgiveness of sins. The, the healing and the compassion that was taking place. And the proclamation of the Word of God. The eternal Word of God. That which saves. Jesus is presenting that perfect picture of sanity there in their midst. The family thought him mad. The other group of people who were, who were there in the midst of him uh, were the scribes of the Pharisees. And what did they do? They didn't have the option of saying he was mad. Why is that? Because they had been witness to and had been in the midst of witnesses to him doing things that a madman couldn't do. 
He was preaching with power, yes, but he was performing miracles. He was doing things that simply being mad, everybody would have to be mad. Everybody would have to have to be mass delusion in order to explain what was going on. They couldn't say, you all are mad. They couldn't say he was mad. They had to come up with a different charge. And so they look and they say, Jesus is doing what he does by the power of the devil. He speaks about Beelzebub, Beelzebul, depending on the translation there. Uh, the Lord of the Flies is another literal translation, or the Lord of this house. Another name really for the prince of the demons, Satan himself. What they were saying is what Jesus is doing is wicked and devilish. And what he is doing is he is claiming to cast out demons, but all he's really doing is a show to glorify Satan and by the power of Satan himself. They could not say Jesus is a lunatic, so what they have to do is cast him as the most wicked of liars. Do you see how Lewis picks up on this so rightly in his mere Christianity? He says these are two options that are before you as you read the text. Is he crazy or is he wicked? Well, we, know, we know it's neither one of those two. But I, I do love the fact that Lewis says, but let's not be patronizing about this. Let's not water it down and be mamby-pamby and say, well, you know, he's a good teacher. He doesn't leave that option open for us. What he does is he presents himself in his fullness, his perfection. He is perfectly sane, but we also know he is perfectly righteous and pure. There is no lunacy in him, neither is there wickedness. And so here's what Jesus says when they come to him. In this context, they come to him and they are accusing him and they're wanting to discredit him and remove him from the center of the spectacle to serve their own purposes. The family would have peace. But then again, the scribes of the Pharisees, they would have peace too. That their profession would not be inconvenienced by this one who is in their midst. So Jesus speaks of a couple of things. First, he begins by, by talking about the, this idea that you can't have a house divided against itself. He says, how can uh, Satan cast out Satan? He's saying that this defeats all the rules of warfare, all the rules of combat, all the rules of engagement. He says, if a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. I'm I'm casting out and people are praising God. How is that going to be glorifying to Satan if I'm doing the power and doing it by the power of Satan? He he speaks about this idea. He says it just simply does not make sense. But then he turns and he talks about another parable. He tells another very brief story. He uses a metaphor uh, to help us understand what's going on. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. He says, then he can enter and he can plunder. The idea, if you have if you have somebody that's armed and strong, powerful, knows combat, you got that Navy SEAL, and he's sitting there in his living room, a crook's not going to walk in there and just steal things right in front of him. So he needs to be bound up. He needs to be incapacitated. He needs to be taken captive in order to accomplish whatever you're trying to do. And so what Jesus is, is, is doing here is he is talking about that is not Satan casting out Satan, that that which is being seen is indeed the strong man, now the strong man here not being a Navy SEAL, but the strong man indeed being Satan, the strong man is being plundered. That's why there is such controversy. That's why there is such upheaval right in the midst of this is that Jesus has come and the strong man is bound and we see that perfect binding to take place in the crucifixion of Jesus that the power of Satan is cut. 
There is no more death. There is no more grave. There is no more power that holds us captive. There is no more sin which keeps us in chains. It is paid for by Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that what has happened is Jesus has come into the kingdom of darkness and He has taken on the God of this world and He is carrying away His possessions. Every time He delivers somebody, every time demons are cast into a herd of swine and and are run off, every time that Satan is rebuked, Jesus is showing, no, I don't do this by the power of Beelzebub. I don't do this by the power of Satan. I have bound that beast. I am victorious. So it's a wonderful thing that Jesus proclaims here. Not only am I sane, not only am I righteous, but I am victorious. Victorious. We see this wonderful picture of Jesus standing strong. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 12 Jesus says in verse 28, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is that that victory of the kingdom of God, the one who always leads us in triumph. It's a beautiful picture. And then Jesus goes on and he gives gives a warning. And in the warning, uh, he, he speaks about the idea of forgiveness and unforgiveness, that which is forgivable and that which is not. We have come to this point where we begin to see the attitudes of the hearts of people that are dealing with them and Jesus beginning to address those in a real way and in a very stern way. And we come to a passage of Scripture that Martin Lloyd-Jones calls uh, the most fearful text in all of the Bible. Now, so are you ready? Jesus gives a warning, but he begins by saying in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So when we see this warning given by Jesus, the first thing we see is this glorious promise. This simple phrase, he says, truly I say to you. Amen, truly. Amen, lego humin. Truly, verily, I say this to you. This phrase will come up about a dozen times in our reading through Mark. A dozen times Jesus says, I say to you. This is truth. Now, we know that every word of Jesus is truth. But when the one who is truth says this is truth, he says that so that we'll listen. And he says, I tell you the truth. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. There's no madness in Jesus. There's no dishonesty. The man that they call crazy, the man they call a demon, it stands before you, Jesus says, I'm proclaiming forgiveness. Forgiveness, all sins. Jesus is the hope. Jesus is forgiveness. And you know what? This simple statement right here says that Jesus is the hope for sinners. He's the hope for murderers. He's the hope for the rapist. He is the hope for the thief. He is the hope for the child abuser. He is the hope for the alcoholic, the drug addict, the prostitute, the swindler, the thief. Jesus Christ is the hope for forgiveness and deliverance from these things. He says, truly I say to you, listen to me, he says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he uses this as a wonderful picture about the what's needed in the healing relationship that needs to take place in so many marriages Uh, And he points us to the gospel and tells us to bring it into our homes. And he says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. 
Hear that. The bad news of the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. There's a comma there, not a period. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and we are more accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. More sinful than we ever dared believe, but more loved, forgiven, and accepted than we ever dared hope. So Jesus says even these blasphemies, even these blasphemies will be forgiven. Think about those who mocked Jesus on the cross. That moment of of victory, but that moment of weakness where victory came in, Jesus upon the cross, even those that mocked, beat, bruised, nailed, and scorned Jesus on the cross, those who mocked Him and said, why don't you come down off the cross, those who gambled for His clothes underneath His feet, underneath His bleeding, pierced feet, Jesus says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. There's forgiveness. There's amazing forgiveness. Overwhelming forgiveness. Even Paul. Paul, when he was still Saul, he was a Christian killer. And not only would he kill them, if he could do it, before he would take their lives or throw them in jail or separate families, he would get them to blaspheme Jesus. He would press them to blasphemy And even even Paul found forgiveness. My friends, we so often sing Amazing Grace. It's that that hymn that Christians have to sing. And I think we have to sing it. Because we need to grasp how really true it is. How amazing that forgiveness is. But, But what isn't forgiven? We come to the difficulty in the text. Jesus goes on. And he does say, truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Hard words. I I don't want to make light of them. I don't want to dismiss them. We address them. That's one of the benefits of going verse by verse through God's word is we don't ignore things and say, oh, I'd rather that that's not be in there. So what do, we, what do we have? What is not forgiven? Christians have heaped up over history a list of things that they think might fall into this idea of unforgivable sins. And there are those sins that we treat like they're unforgivable, aren't there? You don't have to nod your head, so I'll, I know that it's true. There are those sins that we, we look at and we say, well, I don't see how God could ever forgive that. What, is, it, is it just pure and simple nasty blasphemy? Well, uh, 1 Timothy 1.13, as I said, Paul said formerly, I was a blasphemer. Not only that, a persecutor and an insolent opponent. The one who forced Christians to blaspheme, he himself found forgiveness. It can't be simple blasphemy there. Even the, the straightforward words of Jesus when he says, Whoever, whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven them. It can't be just simple blasphemy. Blasphemy, by the way, is, is when you, you, you take the name of God and you drag it through the filth of this world. That you would, you, you would just use that which is, is sacred, taking the Lord's name in vain. And, and speaking, and let me tell you, the idea that blasphemy forgiven is hope uh, to this world because it's increasingly so that people feel Hollywood movies, songs, and even in our daily conversation, uh, far too many people think to make a point they have to blaspheme God. To make a point, to get your attention, they've got to say something nasty and invoke God's name in the midst of it. And, and, and please pray that you never, ever get comfortable listening to that. Pray that it doesn't become so common that you dismiss it as being simple and irrelevant. But know this, that even blasphemers can be forgiven 
There's forgiveness. Well, how about sexual sins? Well, these again, they, they increase in their deviancy. They increase in their horror as we, we look around us. We blush. We turn in shame. We shrink in disgust. But again, there's forgiveness. There is forgiveness. How about divorce? How about homosexuality? How about uh, murder? Wicked sins, all of these. Suicide. It's, it's been deemed, you know, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and life is a gift from God, and we, we, dare, not, we dare not take it. We, we dare not take our own life or the lives of others. But, but all of these things, we, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Make a note of this. I encourage you to read this uh, this afternoon or flip over there as I do it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> this is the Apostle Paul, remember? The former blasphemer, the persecutor of the church, that insolent opponent by his own description, this chief of sinners. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9, 10, 11. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, well, wait a minute, Brandon. Didn't you say that that wasn't the unforgivable sin? But here it says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Well, read verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. He's speaking to the Christians there. He's speaking to the saints. He's speaking to those who are saved. He said, such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Yes, those sins are great, and they're wicked, and they're not to be named among us, but they are forgivable. And we proclaim Jesus Christ. I think about just, just last week, the missionary stood before us and was talking about those that we look at, and we say there is no way that God could ever, ever make that man to become a Christian. And those are the ones that I think God rejoices in, in showing us His salvation and His forgiveness right in front of us, saving the vilest offender who truly believes. One other thing, is it simply this unforgivable sin? Is it simply straightforward unbelief? Is it simply not believing? Is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is that just another way of saying unbelief? All right, so let's think that through. If you don't ever believe, you will not be saved. We, we believe that, right? You have to believe. In, in order to, to, to know God, you have to believe that He is, right? That we are called upon to believe and be saved. You must believe, sure. But understand this, unbelief is not unpardonable. You know why I know that? Because how many among you used to not believe? And now you do. The only exception to that rule might be those for whom we pray, covenant children being raised up. And we, we do pray, and I pray this regularly. So may they never know a day that they didn't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. A benefit to being raised in the covenant household is so many that have always been taught the things of God and Jesus Christ. But so many, and we pray there would be so many more. Unbelief is not unpardonable. Unbelief is not unpardonable. So, I have spent a lot of, of chronological real estate here, a lot of time talking about what it's not. What is it? There's three times that Scripture speaks about this. It is a solemn warning. The unforgivable sin, as best I can articulate it, is this. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in an act of resistance 
which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that the Spirit withdraws. Withdraws forever from that person. And His convicting power takes it away so that person never repents and is not forgiven. It is that act of rebellious resistance that belittles the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it take for that? Hebrews chapter 6 speaks about this. Hebrews 6 says it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. That is, those who spend time sitting in the pews. They've got their spots. They've tasted the heavenly gift. That is, they have had great Sunday school teaching. They've had loving discipleship relationships. They have tasted the heavenly gift, and shared the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and fallen away. That is, to look fully upon Jesus Christ offered for their salvation, and to not only walk away from it, but to ascribe it as wrong, wicked, and evil. Now, does that mean that somebody who backslides has suddenly committed the unforgivable sin? Somebody who has been a part of the church and then was away for a while? No, no, no. By no means. By no means, you think about that one sheep who wanders from the, the herd, who wanders from the flock, and Jesus crosses over mountain after mountain to retrieve them and bring them home. Or the father who waits for his prodigal son and grabs him and embraces him and rolls in the meadow with him, much to the embarrassment of all of his staff. That is a picture of our Heavenly Father who waits to reclaim even those who wander for a bit. But it is to, to resist the Holy Spirit to, with such vigor and such venom and to impute the things of God as wicked, that there is no forgiveness. The Holy Spirit leaves. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this as being a a fearful text, and, and here's why. Here's why. It is a pastoral warning to those who sit week in and week out in church, who have tasted of heavenly things, and they walk away to to choose the desires of this world and grievously resist and deny the Holy Spirit. It's a warning for all who would hear today that we would daily draw close to God. Draw close to God through Christ. That we would not seek to figure out how far we can walk away from God and still come back. Not to seek how much can we do of my pleasure before I stop doing God's pleasure, but how close can I draw near to my Savior. Think about when I was a child one point I was given a, a shiny silver dollar, a pretty impressive thing back in the day. Shiny silver dollar. And I was up at Lake Martin with a friend of mine standing on a pier and showing it off. I even flipped it. Flipped it, caught it. And my friend looked at me, knowing a little bit of pride that exists between a couple of boys with a little rivalry between each other. Bet you can't flip it higher. Flipped it caught it. Bet you can't flip it higher. And you know what I saw, what I could do? See how high I could flip it before I dropped it. You know what the danger of that is? You only know how high you can flip it when you drop it. That prize lost in the murky bottom of 20 feet of Lake Martin. Don't don't see how don't see how loosely you can hold on to Jesus. Cling tight. Today think 
how can I, how can I rejoice in him more? And so let me tell you this, when we read a, a passage of scripture like this and you think, this is scary, it's scary stuff. And you know what? If this, if this burdens you, if it worries you, if it scares you, good. Good. You know why? Here's, here's the thing. If you've worried about maybe have I committed this sin? Uh, I'm scared. Could I commit this sin? Well, let me tell you, if you are saved, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, that love can never be separated from you. Romans 8 is emphatic about it. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. John chapter 10, Jesus says, this is like that silver dollar, but you're being held in God's hand and there's nothing that can take you out of it. There is nothing. And if you are concerned about this, if this troubles you, if this worries you, if you desire that I would never, ever, ever do that, which God says, this is unforgivable. Good. That means the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, that it's soft, that it's sensitive, and listen to that. And feed that. And, and rest upon it. And know, again, as Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven. Though your sin is great, my forgiveness is greater. Run to Jesus, friends. Run to Jesus as you struggle with your sin. As you worry and say, Lord, can you possibly forgive me? Know that he can. And he will. He will forgive you all manners of blasphemy and wickedness. That's, that's the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel. This is no madman who proclaims this and no wicked liar or lunatic. This is the Lord. The only option left to us. The Lord who stands before us and says, come unto me. Be forgiven. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Lord, as we hear your word, as we rejoice in it, Father, we, we thank you for the tough words, Father, the, the solemn words. And I pray, Lord, that if any in the sound of my voice here today that, that realize, Lord, I have been, I've been listening and walking away and listening and walking away and listening and walking away. Let this be the day, Lord God, they say, I will walk no more. This will be the day that I will stray no longer. This will be the day that I will strive to walk closer to you each and every day. And Father, that's only possible if you would lead me, if you would guide me. I surrender my life fully to you. I want in my life what you want in my life, for I know that's best. So I trust and I rest in you. Thank you, Lord God, that we find in Jesus Christ forgiveness for the greatest of sins. And that we follow no madman. We follow no liar. We follow the Lord, whose name is the only name under heaven and earth by which we may be saved. And we pray in that name. Amen.